It's so good to be with you today. I, um, I typically try to start off by pointing out odd things like somebody bringing an adjustable dumbbell and sitting it down beside me. But I'm not going to do that today. Today, I want to get right into the Word. Who's ready to get into the Word this morning? Open your Bible up to James chapter 1. Last week, we started our new series uh, going through the, the book of James, which was written by Jesus' half-brother. And uh, hopefully, you, you were able to listen to that message either in person or online. If you haven't gotten the chance to listen to that message, I encourage you to go back uh, to our podcast to our Facebook, I think even to our YouTube, and you can check that message out. I hope it'll be a message that builds your faith and challenges your faith, because I know for me personally, um, I'm not ashamed to tell you, I, I sometimes go through seasons of doubt and concern, like, is this real? Can I trust the Bible? Is Jesus really who he said he is? Is, is, this, is this a trustworthy story? And uh, James is a person in God's word who gives me a great deal of confidence that Jesus really is who he said he is. Because if, you're, if, if you can get to the place where you can call yourself a servant or a slave of your older brother, that, that has to be God. Like, like, that has to be God. And, and Jesus didn't just have one brother who did it. He had another brother, Jude, who did it as well. So, uh, I mean, like, you, you give all the evidence you want to give me. I'm going to go back to James. I'll be like, if his brother believed in him, then he, it was for real. And so um, James is, is, raise your hand if James is one of your favorite books of the Bible. I know it's a lot of people's favorite book. A lot of, at least some of people's like among their favorite books. Uh, my favorite book of the Bible changes between which New Testament epistle I'm reading that week. I, I go from Galatians to Philippians to James to uh, uh, never Revelation. Uh, can't say that I've ever really enjoyed Revelation. The first few chapters aren't too bad, but after that, um, it becomes not my favorite. Uh, not that it's bad. You should read it. We, we need to read all of the Word of God. Uh, I read Job earlier this year, and I really thought, Lord, why did you do this? This is, this is not good. I don't like this. But it, there's some good stuff in there as well. And if you can't be honest about reading the Bible and saying, like if anybody says, oh, I love Leviticus, you are lying to yourself and to everyone around you. You don't love Leviticus. You have a problem. Um, you're strange. Um, but anyway, I love, I love me some James. And I think what I like about James is that James is just super relatable. He's super understandable. He's incredibly practical. And he talks a lot about having real faith, but he does it from the context of living a real life. Now, I'll be real with you. <clears throat> I read the words of Paul, <clears throat> and I love Paul. Paul has a lot of great stuff to say. Galatians might truly be my favorite book in the Bible, uh, followed really closely by Romans, Philippians, and Ephesians. I mean, I just, I love all of Paul's writings, even Philemon, or Philemon, however you choose to pronounce it wrong. I... Um, <laughs> Because if you say this is how it said, you don't know. Anyway, um, I, I, but 
the truth is, sometimes you read Paul and you feel like, wow, that's great, Paul. Good for you, buddy. You are the man. But I can't, I don't, I can't do that, Paul. Like you're so, and Paul, Paul was very educated. Paul was very intelligent. And so was James. James was, was, was a very smart man. In fact, I would venture to say that James displays a greater measure of wisdom than Paul does himself. However, Paul displays a greater measure of intellect. And if there's anything in this world that I wish I had a little bit more of, it would be intellect. And so when I read Paul, I find myself intimidated as much as I am encouraged. But when I read James, I think, you know what? I can do this. I can get this. I can grab hold of this. In fact, James is often referred to as the New Testament version of Proverbs because it is is very short, succinct, and a lot of great wisdom. So today we're going to read uh, James. We're going to start in James chapter 1. We're going to read uh, verses 2 through Eight. You guys ready? Yeah. All right. The, this is what James says. He says, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. I'm reading from the New Living this morning, New Living Translation. He says, for when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete. How many of you would like to become perfect? Raise your hand. All right. How many of you think that the idea of becoming perfect is impossible in this earth, in this life? But not for James. It it would not be offered in the word of God to us and available to us if it wasn't possible for us. I'm just going to go ahead and plant that seed in your heart this morning. He says, you'll be perfect, complete, needing nothing. He says, if you need wisdom, how many of you would say today, I would like some more wisdom in my life. He says, if you need wisdom, ask our generous God and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking, but when you ask him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do not waver for a person with a divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. This is pretty, I don't think harsh is the right word, but it's some pretty, let's go straight up. James is being pretty straight up right here. He says, if you need something from God, he's referring to wisdom, but understand that wisdom would not be the only thing that James would say if you need it from God. He says, ask him because he's generous. But, but if you need something from God, don't, don't hedge your bets and try to put some faith somewhere else as well. And that's a lot of times what we'll do in our life, right? We will, we will say, okay, God, I need you to do this. Like maybe, maybe you need something financial, uh, a breakthrough in your life. But then, you know, you start putting things on Facebook and you start putting some feelers out there, seeing if somebody might, you know, give you some money or something like that. Uh, may, I don't know. Maybe you do that. That's kind of awkward. But, you know, if that's your way of doing things. I think James would say to you, uh, you are a person with divided loyalty because you are putting your faith in God and in people. And so he goes on and he says, uh, such people shouldn't expect to receive anything from the Lord. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world, and they are unstable in everything they do. James doesn't mince words, does he? Will you pray with me and would you pray for me this morning? Father, I, uh, I just thank you so much for the opportunity to preach your word. I thank you so much for this incredible church and every single person 
and family that is gathered here today. And God, as we uh, unpack the words of the brother of Jesus, we pray that the presence of Jesus would be incredibly evident in us, among us, and through us. And God, that you would have your way in our hearts, that you would transform our minds, and that you would renew our spirits, and that we would leave this place changed by your love and by your goodness. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. I'm just going to hit the ground running this morning, and we're going we're gonna to continue to dive right into this. So the first thing I want to do is I want to ask you a question. I actually have a lot of questions I want to ask you as we reflect on the text here that, that James has for us. And the first question I want to ask you is, how do you think about troubles? Or, you know, we might substitute a word like tests or trials or hardships or resistance. James and the people that James were writing to specifically would interject the word persecution. Uh, that's something that we specifically don't know that much about, but who's to say that in our lifetimes it wouldn't become something that we know more about? And so I want to ask you, how do you think about them? How do you respond to them? And I thought a lot about this. And, and the first thing I want to say is it would do us really well every so often to think about the things that we think about. Because left unchecked, our mind will run, will run wild in ways that, that aren't healthy and aren't good. And, and I have a voice that lives with me called Kristen. That, that, because I think out loud a lot of times. And, and so, wow. And sometimes it's even a little unwelcome voice, apparently. <laughs> but, um, you know, and it, it's good to think about what you think about. So James would say... How do you think about the troubles that you face? How do you think about the hard times that you go through? And then if you're like me and if you're like most people, I think most of us, when we think about troubles or hardships or trials or even temptations, we would say they are something to be avoided, right? I mean, like, let's just be real about it. Something difficult in life is something that more times than not, I would much rather just not go through that or deal with that, or think about it, right? Uh, so, and if I can't avoid it, and I, I don't have any choice but to face it, maybe another way that I would think about troubles in my life would be, I just gotta get through this, okay? How many of you have said it? You know, I'm making it. You know, you're go somebody says, how you doing, man? Oh, I'm making it, I'm, go I'm making it. Can I just tell you that, that according to the half-brother of Jesus, that's probably not a great way to speak about difficult situations in your life? Come on, somebody. I, didn't, I mean, let's, let's just be real about it. The, the best things in life are rarely the easy things, and the easy things are rarely the best things, are they? And so, you know, if we can't avoid it, we go through it and we think, okay, I just got to get through it. I, I got to get through it fast. I need to hurry through this. I need to just make it. And then there's the other option, and I'm sure there's many more, but I can only think of three that I kind of default towards. If I can't, if I can't avoid it and I can't, rush it, then I'm just going to complain about it the whole time I'm in the middle of it. Can I get a witness in the house today? Do you need to turn my mic up, Brandon? Because I don't know if anybody can hear me this morning. <clears throat> so, so that's how I, more, than, more times than I would care to admit, think about hard things in my life. And, and you know, it could, hard things could be many things, right? It could be many different things in our life, big or small. So, how do we think about hardships? How do we think about troubles? 
versus how does James tell us we should think about troubles? He gives us a phrase, and I don't like this phrase in regards to troubles. Now, AJ, if, if, if James said, when you think about your family and your beautiful, obedient children and your magnificent, submissive wife, <laughs> it's a joke, don't, don't throw stuff at me. James, would, you know, if he said, when you think about those things, consider it great joy. I would say, amen, James, right? When, if James were to say, um, when you get a raise at work and when all the traffic lights turn green at just the right time, come on, somebody. And there's a spot near the store opened up just in time for you. And your cart is clean and doesn't have weird grimy stuff on it. And your wheels roll in the correct direction on your, on your buggy because we're in the south. And that's, my friend, is what they're called. Buggies, right? It says, you know, if James said, consider it great joy when those things happen to you. I would say, you know what? James is, is preaching good today. But this is what he says, dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind, everybody say the phrase, any kind, come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. Now I read that and the first thing I think is, James, are you okay? I mean, like, I don't, I, it's one thing to say, okay, I know God's going to turn things for good, right? I think, I think we believe that in this room. I don't know that we always all live that in this room. But James is actually not just saying, hey, think about the future and think, you know, that God's going to make good out of this. No, James is saying, think about the trouble that you are facing in this moment and consider it great joy. Or rather, he says, consider it an opportunity like like this is this is what I think James is saying as he's saying this. He's saying, you know, if you see trouble, he's saying, you go, oh man, I can't wait for that. That's going to be an opportunity for great joy. That's that's how he's referring to how we should think about and how we should respond to troubles in our life. That we should be like, wow, I'm so excited about this moment because this is going to give me an opportunity for great joy. Anybody else think that's weird or is it just me? <laughs> Troubles, what James is telling us, hardships, trials, you know, you, you pick your poison there, literally. Pick your word. When we consider them when, and when we think about them correctly, they, what he's trying to tell us and what he will show us is that they can be leveraged for our good. And, and, and he's not talking about the good one day win. Like Paul does a really good job of saying that, you know, all things will work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. I think that's Romans 8, 26. That's Paul right there. But James is not saying that all things will work together. James is saying, if you'll think about it right now, good, right now, can come out of your trouble. Not one day when. Not one day when God turns what the enemy meant for evil and, and turns it for good. But in this very moment, and James, you have to remember the people he's talking to, right? He says, if you go and you read a few verses up, uh, there's a Greek word that he uses, diaspora, but uh, really what he's talking to is the Jewish uh, believers in Jesus. And he says to the 12 tribes that are scattered abroad, you see, if you go back in your Bible to Acts chapter seven, you're gonna uh, read about one of the coolest people 
to ever live, and that's a man named Stephen. Stephen was the uh, first martyr, the first person to give up his life uh, because of his faith in Jesus Christ. And up until this point, the believers in Jesus had stayed pretty close around Jerusalem. You go and you read Acts chapter 1, Jesus says, go to Jerusalem and wait on the gift of the Holy Spirit, that when he comes, you will be endued with power, and then you will go and you'll be my witnesses to Jerusalem, to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, right? That's what Jesus says to the 120 who then gather in the upper room. But between Acts chapter 2, as they receive the promise of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and Acts chapter 7, which I'm not exactly sure how much time has passed, but it's, it's been a hot minute. Uh, they have not been necessarily 100% obedient to the command of Christ to leave Jerusalem with the gift of the Holy Spirit, to then go to Judea, to then go to uh, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And so what happens in Acts chapter 7 is that Stephen begins to boldly proclaim the the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And man, if there is a, a theological chapter that connects God's work from the Old Testament to God's work in the New Testament, it is Acts chapter 7 in the sermon of Stephen. And what happens is as Stephen begins to preach, the Pharisees and the, and the zealots and the, and, the, and the Jewish people are inflamed with rage and they literally drag Stephen outside the city and they begin to stone him uh, for what he is saying. And the Bible says, and I love this, and this isn't part of the message. You don't have to write it down if you don't want to. But Stephen, looking up to heaven, the Bible says that he saw the Son of God standing at the right hand of the Father. He saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. It's the only time in Scripture where Jesus is, is stated to be standing at the right hand of the Father. Every other time, he is seated at the right hand of the Father. But you got to know that as, that as Stephen was giving up his life for his beliefs and for what he held to be the most precious thing in his life, he got a standing ovation straight from Jesus from heaven. Come on, that's pretty powerful stuff right there. But then you go into Acts chapter 8, and you'll find out that at that point, because of what Stephen did and because of what happened to Stephen, and there's another man mentioned. His name is Saul of Tarsus, who was a Pharisee among Pharisees, who was persecuting the Christian believers, who held the coats of those who stoned Stephen. Uh, we'll hear more about him in Acts chapter 9. But in Acts chapter 8, you find out that great persecution broke out against all of the believers in Jerusalem. And the Bible says that they then scattered. They went all over the place. And it was in that moment that they became obedient to what Jesus had actually told them to do. They're trying to find scriptures as I'm talking. I'm proud of them back there. Come on, give it a hand. Give a hand to our media team right now. They're doing good. And, and so it was in that moment when they were faced with hardships and troubles and persecution that they actually started doing what Jesus had commanded them to do, right? And so, so James is writing to these people who in Acts chapter 8 began to scatter and begin to go and begin to flee into other parts of the world. And these people knew how God could bring good out of tragedy like nobody else. These people understood what persecution, real, true persecution looked like, where, where you were very likely to lose your family, to lose your job, to lose your income, and to possibly even lose your life because of your faith in Jesus. These people knew what it was like to grieve because they had lost brothers and sisters and family members and friends in the faith because of their faith in Christ. They knew what it was like to, to be poor, and I don't, mean, I don't mean barely making it by. I don't mean week to week or month to month. I mean 
being ostracized from society because of your faith in Christ and therefore having no way to earn money or to even spend the money that you may have because people would refuse to do business with you because of your faith in Jesus. And so James is writing to people who understand trouble to a level that I would say, and I say this with humility because I am among you, that we don't really understand, that we can't really grasp. But what I love about James is he doesn't say when you go through persecution or when you experience abject poverty or when you are sick and can't get any treatment because the physicians in town refuse to see you because of your faith in Christ or when your heart is broken because your best friend was just executed because of his faith. And that's the reality of the people James is writing to. But what I love about James and what makes it applicable to us today is he doesn't say when you go through this, rather he says when you go through troubles of any kind, of any kind. And so your troubles could be big troubles, they could be small troubles. They could be anything from a flat tire to a lost job, right? It could be anything from a kid who is sick uh, for a few days to uh, a diagnosis that might possibly end a loved one's or your own self's life. He says when you go through troubles of any kind, it could be something as simple and as annoying as allergies in East Tennessee. Can I get a witness in the house today? It could be a relationship that's fallen apart. And what James is telling us then, and he's telling us today, is that you can experience great joy, not despite your troubles. And I think that's what we think most of the time, that, that we can experience great joy. This is hard, and you have to grow up to, to own this. We can experience great joy because of our troubles. That's what James is trying to teach us. I think it's easy for us to say, oh yeah, we can have joy despite our troubles. Like, because it's about what God's done in me, not what's going on around me. And that's good, that'll preach. That's not, that's not wrong. That's completely and 100% accurate. It's just slightly incomplete. And James is not saying that you can just have trouble, to, or just have joy despite your troubles. He's saying that you, Chad, you, Holly, you, Eli, you, me, we can have trouble or we can have joy because of our trouble. Isn't that, isn't that wild? Like, I just want to ask you, and I'm sincere, that when you read that and when you hold on to that, does that blow your mind like it did me as I really dove into this? That, that I can have, jo I can't say the words, I can have joy not despite my trouble, but even because of my troubles. So, which leads us to this question. And James doesn't ask this question, but anybody who's really wrestling with this should ask this question. Why? Why should I consider trouble an opportunity for great joy? You guys with me this morning, y'all are quiet. I know you're digesting a lot of this and, and, and you're just wondering what this dumbbell's doing up here, right? Why should we consider trouble an opportunity for great joy? Well, let me, let, me, let me preface this idea with two things. 
Number one, James is not saying that we should go out looking for trouble, right? That's not what James is saying. He's not saying, you know, hey, consider trouble an opportunity for great joy. So, you know, anytime you have an opportunity to make trouble, hey, good for you. You're setting yourself up for great joy. No, that's not what James is saying because uh, you don't have to go looking for trouble, right? You don't have to go looking for pain. You don't have to go looking for problems. You don't have to go looking for for hardships, right? They will find you. James is also not saying that God brings trouble into our lives. I think that's very important that we understand that. James is not trying to say that God is the kind of God who who sets us up for, for bad things to happen to us, but rather God is the kind of God in his infinite wisdom. Remember, his ways are above our ways. His thoughts are above our thoughts. So if the more you try to comprehend this, I, I think the more you're going to go, you know what? I just, I wish I understood, but at some point you just have to say, I believe it by faith. I accept it by faith. But, but God is the kind of God who doesn't bring trouble into our life, but in his nature of who he is, he will allow certain things knowing how, when we can take those as an opportunity for great joy, knowing how he is going to use it for his glory and our good. So, so God doesn't bring the trouble and we don't need to go find the trouble. Amen? Because God will use the trouble that is bound to find us. In verse 3, he says, Troubles test our faith, which grow our endurance. In verse 4, he says, As our endurance grows, our faith grows. And this becomes like a cycle in our life, right? This becomes something that we go through over and over again. And he says, and this is kind of where we stopped as we read through the text earlier. He says, When this is fully developed, we will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Now, I asked you earlier, how many of you would like to be perfect? And pretty much everybody raised their hand. And I said, how many of you think that you can become perfect? And pretty much nobody raised their hand. But I want to tell you, and I want to reemphasize what I said earlier, God would not offer it to you in his word as an option for you if it wasn't possible through what Jesus has done for us. And I'm not talking about the one day win life that we have in heaven. I'm talking about this day life as we are emissaries of the kingdom of heaven, as we see the kingdom of heaven become the reality in the kingdom of this world. Amen? Amen. So, so you have to understand the, the, what James means when he says that you can become perfect, that you can become complete, that you can get to a place where you need nothing. So if you go and you pull out a Greek dictionary, you'll find out that this word, perfect, in the original language that James used to write it to the 12 tribes of Jewish believers that were scattered among the nations, is a Greek word, teleos. And this is the best way I can think of describing it to you. So we have three children, and I talk about my kids a lot because you, as a preacher, you have to have illustrations. And, and that's what you do, right? That's just par for the course for your PKs, for preacher's kids. So if I tell my daughters, uh, specifically Olivia and Julia, if I tell Magnolia to clean her room, she laughs at me and walks away. But, and that's not a lie, is it? That's pretty real. Y'all pray for us. But if I tell Olivia and Julia to go clean your room and, and I give them, and it doesn't matter if I give them 30 minutes or three hours, I'm going to get the same finished product, right? So I usually give them 15 minutes. I'm like, go clean your room. And let's just say that on this particular day of the week, they are just, they are just on it, right? They are killing it. And I walk into their room, Holly, and I see them standing there and they've cleaned their room. And I walk in, Chad, and I say, guys, your room is perfect, how many of you understand 
that my 10-year-old and my 8-year-old did not just clean that room beyond being cleaned anymore. Does that make sense to you? So, so if I walk into their room and I say, girls, this is perfect. You did great. This is, this is perfect. That does not mean the room is perfect because I guarantee you within two minutes I could make it perfecter, right? All right. Um, what it means is that I walked into that room and I understood that because of their age, their maturity, and their ability, that it is as good as I could ever expect it to be given the, the limitations and the abilities that they possess. And so, so do, do you follow me now? So as James says, you can be made perfect and complete. He's not saying that you are perfect and flawless. He is saying that God has completed his work in you to the point where he can look at you and say, you are doing exactly what I've called you to do and you are becoming exactly who I've called you to be. And it doesn't mean that, that, that you know, perfect when you're 35 may not be perfect when you're 45. In fact, it won't be because if you're going to continue in that cycle of facing challenges, facing troubles, facing problems and trials that build your endurance, which in turn build your character. Listen, they don't stop until you see him face to face. So God is not making you perfect in a moment. He is making you perfect over the period of your life. And that's what James is conveying to us. And you can never stop at the level that you currently have attained. You follow me? And so, here's the question. What should we want most as a follower of Jesus? It should be that we want to become more like Jesus. And I don't know if there is a tool in his arsenal that is any greater at accomplishing this goal than allowing us to go through troubles, trials, hardships, resistance, and pain. Remember, how do we think about our troubles? Do we think about them like, ah, I want to avoid that, or ah, I need to just get through this as quick as I can, or maybe I'm just going to complain about it the whole time, right? What we do when we don't stop and give our troubles an opportunity to be considered great joy is we neglect the greatest tool God has to do the greatest work in us God can do. Because the end game of my life on earth is not, somebody said, it's not to arrive safely at death. Right? My end game, or God's end game of my life on earth is that every single day, I look more like Jesus than I did the day before. And the way he does this, more times than not, is through the hardships that we face. Paul says it like this in Romans 5. He says, we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials. For we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character and strengthens our confident hope of salvation. Hope of salvation is essentially Paul saying, we're becoming every day, every moment, at every hardship, a little bit more like Jesus. Now, how does trouble grow us? How do 
hardships grow us. It's kind of like lifting weights, right? This is an adjustable dumbbell. There's not a lot of weight on here right now because I don't want to embarrass any men in the house. <laughs> but resistance is required to build a muscle. You know, I can sit here and I can do this all day long. And I probably, I'm just going to look like an idiot, but I probably won't get tired for a while. I'll probably be able to do this way longer than you care to sit around and watch me do this. And I will accomplish nothing other than bore you to death. But if I will add a little bit of resistance to that same mo motion, to that same movement, this just, I think it's just 10 pounds on here right now, but I can tell there's a, there's a pretty, pretty big difference. And so, yeah, look, look at that. I should take my overshirt off and you could, <laughs> right? Well, faith is a muscle like a bicep is a muscle. And in order for it to grow, in order for it to become stronger, it has to face resistance. Now, the resistance that we're talking about in the life of faith, we're calling it trouble. We call it trials. We call it hardships. We call it things that stretch us beyond our current capacity. So right now, this may be my current capacity, but if I ever want to get past this, I've got to incrementally step up to something a little harder, a little tougher, right? And I've got to lift that. I've got to work that. Now, here's the thing. At some point, this is going to get easy. At some point, I'm going to become perfect and mature and complete, right? Like what, but you know, like I said earlier, your perfect, mature, and complete at 35 can't be your perfect, mature, and complete at 45. So at some point, this is going to become fruitless. Just like this was fruitless, this will become fruitless. And what God in his grace and his goodness allows. Now, we don't like it, but James, remember, he says it gives us an opportunity to consider it great joy. We don't like it. He adds some weight, right? And you go from 10 pounds to 20 pounds. I'm about to switch arms here in a minute. And it gets harder. And eventually, once again, this will become easy, right? And God will, in his grace and his goodness, he will allow the trouble or the resistance to step up another notch. Here's the thing. Pursuing the easy, right? never takes you to a place you want to be. I'm going to say that again. Pursuing what is easy will never take you to a place that you want to be. But if you will embrace the difficulties and the troubles of life, you will find out in yourself, it may be hard in the moment, but it will set you up for future success and blessings in ways that you could not think, ask, or imagine. And, and, and if you're a parent, if you're a good parent, you, you do this in your own children's lives. You allow them incrementally to face tougher and tougher challenges, not because you don't love them, but because you do love them, because you do care about them. And so if the end goal of life is to become a fully developed, perfect, complete, needing nothing, whole in Christ person, then I have got to stop complaining about the trouble. I've got to stop running from the trouble. I've got to stop just trying to, to, to get through the trouble. You know, you know, we lift weights. You can have some bad form and you can swing it and you can, I can get 10 sets in and it'll be a lot easier than if I do it like this. Oh, and you got to raise the pinky at the top too, right? If you know what I'm talking about, you know. If you don't, then you don't know. 
And James is telling us, embrace the trouble. Embrace, that's what he means when he says, consider an opportunity for great joy. And here's the thing, Eli, come up here for a minute for me. Come on. Here you go. Nobody can do it for me. Go ahead. You can do it. I believe in you. All right, just keep doing that. Give, it a, give a hand for Eli. But guess what? He's doing my work, but I'm getting no benefit. Let me tell you right now, your mom or your daddy can't do it for you. Your pastor can't do it for you. Your, your uncle, your grandparent, nobody else can do it for you. Your boss can't do it for you. I can't do it for you. You have to keep going, man. What you doing? You have to do it for you. Because if I don't do it for me, then I get no benefit other than just to stand in awe of this awesome young man, right? Come on, give it up. Thanks, buddy. I can't believe Holly didn't take any pictures. You will do it again. <laughs> so what do we do in the middle of our trouble? James tells us, Specifically, he says, ask God for wisdom. Ask God for wisdom. I thought about this, like, that seems odd to me. Why would James tell us to ask God for wisdom in the middle of trouble? Here's why. The problem that we run into with our trouble is not facing our trouble, but how we think about our trouble. So when I'm facing trouble, what I think I need is help. And God is available for that in certain circumstances. But what I really need is right thinking. And so James says, when you face troubles, ask God for wisdom who is generous. Now, trouble and confusion seem to go hand in hand. And if you don't believe that, then you did not exist March of 2020. Right? There was a lot of information, but there was very little wisdom. In fact, we coined the phrase misinformation. Here's the deal. Information changes what we think, but wisdom changes how we think. And what I need is not more intellect, not more knowledge, but more wisdom so that the way I think about my trouble is what changes. Not how I think about my trouble, but the way I allow it to affect me. And so I should think, God, help me to consider this and then just you fill in the blank. I, I guarantee you in the room right now, if you were given enough time, you could list at least a dozen things in your life that you're dealing with. Some of them would be small. Some of them would be seemingly uh, like not a big deal at all. Some of them might be huge. And, but, but it doesn't matter. James says, when you face troubles of any kind, consider it an opportunity for great joy. So right now the prayer has to be, God, help me to consider this weight, this problem, this resistance an opportunity for great joy. And, and then James goes a little further and he reminds us of what God is really like. And this is so good because if you're like me, my wife can attest to this, when I go through seasons or situations that seem to be a little, and maybe you understand what I mean, it just seems like everything's all hitting at once. You know what I'm saying? I'll say something like this to Kristen, and I kind of mean it sarcastically, but I kind of mean it sincerely. I think I made God mad. Don't I say that? I think I must, I must, I must tick God off. I don't know, I don't know why he does me that way. And, and, but the thing is, God, or James is telling us that 
God doesn't allow us to go through trouble because he's mad at us. This is so hard, but this forces us into a place of maturity. God allows us to go through trouble because he's mad for us. Because he's a good father, right? And then the other thing that, that is tempting to allow to happen is that we may not think God's mad at us, but we may get mad at God. I've been there. I'm not ashamed to tell you. You may feel like God's angry at you. James says he's a generous God. He's kind of echoing the words of his, his older brother, right? Jesus. In Matthew 7, 11, Jesus says, so if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give good gifts to you, to those who ask him? And so James tells us what God is really like. He says in verse five, and this is from the NIV, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. I gotta hurry. I'm trying, y'all pray for me. Number one, these are the things that James says God is. Number one, God is generous. God is generous. Paul says it like this in Romans eight, since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? He's saying essentially that if God was willing to give up Jesus, what, what won't he do for you? Number two, God does not discriminate. He gives generously to all, James says. In other words, let me say it like this. This ain't Dollywood, guys. You don't get either a platinum pass or a diamond pass or a gold pass or a silver pass or just a measly one-day pass, right? You know, you don't, you don't have to pick and choose between what some of y'all don't know what I'm talking about. You need to go to Dollywood and you'll learn what's up, okay? Dollywood for life. Dolly for president. <laughs> But God's not like Dollywood. Like there's no, there's, there's, there's no ranking of tiers of, of exclusivity in the Lord, right? Uh, because you're a pastor doesn't mean that you have some special access to God. I love getting to pray for people. People will be like, you know, I just need you to pray about this. And I want to ask, and I do a lot of times, I ask them, well, have you prayed about this? Because my prayers contain no special power or formula, no more than yours do as a child of God yourself. And so, so James is telling us, number one, that he's a generous God. Number two, that he doesn't discriminate. If you are God's child, you are God's child, period. End of story. No, no questions asked. And number three, I love this one. God doesn't point fingers. God doesn't point his finger and say, and this is me a lot of times. He doesn't point his finger and say, well, this was your fault anyway. You know, if you would have handled this better, you wouldn't be facing this right now. Or if you'd have done this differently. And so... Real quick, James tells us that instead of being like the world around us, we should ask God for wisdom so that he can help us in that moment to consider it, whatever trouble it is that we're facing, great joy. He tells us to not put our faith in a multitude of sources, but instead to put our faith in God alone. And he kind of rounds it out with saying, and most of all, don't let what you can't control, control you. Instead, ask God, help change the way I think so that I can see this trouble as an opportunity for great joy. So, Lifehouse, what troubles are you facing today? What troubles will you face? Jesus says in John 16, 33. This is a weird scripture because it's both very encouraging and discouraging at the same time. He says, in this world, 
you will have many troubles. But take heart, because I have overcome the world. And so, I was thinking about this. This, this dumbbell goes up to um, 52 and a half pounds. I was at just at 20 a second ago. And I know I can't curl without cheating a little bit. 52 and a half pounds. Oh, I can't even pick it up. <laughs> Man, that's how life goes sometimes though, right? Come on, I mean like for real. You can laugh right now because this looked heavy, but you wouldn't do any better, so don't laugh. <laughs> it feels like we went from 20 to 50 and we didn't even, we just skipped 30 and 40, right? Come on, like doesn't life do us that way sometimes? And, and so we're asking God, God, <clears throat> see, I can't do it. And so I need, I, need, I need somebody a little stronger than me to come help me out. Come on. This is why I wore that skinny t-shirt, AJ. So what we do is, is I'll tell you, I'm going to warn you in advance, this handle's sweaty. <laughs> Here's what we do. We pray something like this. Okay, God, this is too hard for me. I need you to take it from me. And that sounds like a good prayer. Go ahead, God. Yeah. <laughs> How many times are you going? Don't, you're going to get tired. Okay. Oh, All right, hand, hand it back to me. Here's the thing, though. God doesn't want to do it for you. God wants to do it with you. One more time. All right, let's be done. <laughs> Will you stand with me this morning? I want to ask our altar team to come forward and get ready to pray with people today. There's an old saying that is a bad saying. It's not a true saying that says God won't give you more than you can handle. I want to tell you, he absolutely will give you more than you can handle. He will let you go through more than you ever thought you could bear. And it's not because he wants to break you or to destroy you. It's because he sees potential in you to go further than you've ever been and to do more than you've ever done and to grow your faith in ways like you could have only imagined in times past. God will absolutely allow you to go through more than you can handle because it's in those moments, not that you give it all to God, but that you ask for a spot, right? Come on, you say, God, I need some help. I need some wisdom to help me think about this differently. This is beyond what I can handle. God, my faith is feeling weak. My, 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 my thought life is feeling weak right now. This is hard. This is hurting me. God, I need some help. And, and God doesn't just take the weight from us. That's what we think he does a lot of times. And that's how we preach it. But that's not how it works. Because if God takes the weight from us, we miss out on the growth that can come as a result of carrying the trouble ourselves. And so he doesn't come and lift it for me. He just lifts me as I lift it. And so today, church, first of all, 
with every head bowed and every eye closed, nobody looking around, if you are far from the Lord today and you would say, Pastor Drew, I wanna give my life to Jesus, before we go any further, would you just lift your hand right where you are? Just right where you are, is there anybody in the room? I wanna give my life to Jesus because that's the first step. That's the first step of being able to consider trouble as an opportunity for great joy. Is there anybody today? Is there anybody? Okay, second thing, with every head bowed and every eye closed, you say, Pastor Drew, I'm facing some troubles right now. And I've been complaining about them. I've been trying to rush them. I've been trying to avoid them. I've been allowing them to let me get mad at God. I've been allowing them to let me think God was mad at me. But today I wanna ask God for wisdom so I can think about my trouble differently. And today I wanna ask for some help. I don't wanna hand the weight off because I wanna benefit from what I'm going through. But at the same time, I can't do it on my own. I need him to do it with me. I need him to lift me as I lift it because I'm feeling weak today. If that's you, would you lift your hand high in the air so I can see you and pray for you? Several across the room. Now here's what we're gonna do. Here's what we're gonna do. If you just lifted your hand, there's no shame. Man, come on somebody, there's no shame at all. There's some men and women around this altar right here today that wanna help you lift that weight as well. They can't do it for you, but they wanna pray with you and believe God that he's gonna help you lift it as he lifts you. So as Don leads us for a few moments this morning, if you just lifted your hand saying, Pastor Drew, I need some help, I wanna invite you to come to this altar, find one of these altar team members and let them pray with you and believe God with you. Come on, don't delay. Don't feel embarrassed. Don't feel ashamed. Please come now. It's all right. 